0: Chapter Thirteen of Hunting Tower by John Buchan. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Chapter Thirteen, The Coming of the Danish Brig. Mister John Heritage, solitary in the old tower, found much to occupy his mind. His giddiness was passing, though the dregs of a headache remained, and his spirits rose with his responsibilities. At daybreak he breakfasted out of the Meehan Street provision box, and made tea in one of the diehard's camp kettles. Next he gave some attention to his toilet, necessary after the rough and tumble of the night. He made shift to bathe in icy water from the tyre well, shaved, tidied up his clothes, and found a clean shirt from his pack. He carefully brushed his hair, reminding himself that thus had the Spartans done before Thermopylae. The neat and somewhat pallid young man that emerged from these rites then ascended to the first floor to reconnoitre the landscape from the narrow, unglazed windows. If any one had told him a week ago that he would be in so strange a world, he would have quarrelled violently with his informant. A week ago he was a cynical, clear-sighted modern, a contemner of illusions, a swallower of formulas, a breaker of shams, one who had seen through the heroical and found it silly, Romance and such-like toys were playthings for fatted middle-age, not for strenuous and cold-eyed youth. But the truth was that now he was altogether spellbound by these toys. To think that he was serving his lady was rapture, ecstasy, that for her he was single-handed, venturing all. He rejoiced to be alone with his private fancies. His one fear was that the part he had cast himself for should be needless, that the men from the sea should not come— or that reinforcements would arrive before he should be called upon. He hoped alone to make a stand against thousands. What the upshot might be, he did not trouble to inquire. Of course the princess would be saved, but first he must glut his appetite for the heroic. He made a diary of events that day, just as he used to do at the front. At twenty minutes past eight, he saw the first figure coming from the house. It was Spidal, who limped round the tower, tried the door, and came to a halt below the window. Heritage stuck out his head and wished him good morning, getting in reply an amazed stare. The man was not disposed to talk, though Heritage made some interesting observations on the weather, but departed quicker than he came in the direction of the West Lodge. Just before nine o'clock he returned with Dobson and Leon. They made a very complete reconnaissance of the tower, and for a moment Heritage thought that they were about to try to force an entrance they tugged and hammered at the great oak door, which he had further strengthened by erecting behind it a pile of the heaviest lumber he could find in the place. It was imperative that they should not get in, and he got Dixon's pistol ready with the firm intention of shooting them if necessary. But they did nothing except to hold a conference in the hazel-clump a hundred yards to the north, when Dobson seemed to be laying down the law, and Leon spoke rapidly with a great fluttering of hands. They were obviously puzzled by the sight of heritage, whom they believed to have left the neighbourhood. Then Dobson went off, leaving Leon and Spidle on guard, one at the edge of the shrubberies between the tower and the house, the other on the side nearest the laboured lane. These were their posts, but they did sentry-go around the building, and passed so close to Heritage's window that he could have tossed a cigarette on their heads. It occurred to him that he ought to get busy with camouflage. They must be convinced that the princess was in the place, for he wanted their whole mind to be devoted to the siege. He rummaged among the ladies' baggage, and extracted a skirt and a coloured scarf. The latter he managed to flutter, so that it could be seen at the window the next time one of the watchers came within sight. He also fixed up the skirt, so that the fringe of it could be seen, and, when Leon appeared below, he was in the shadow talking rapid French, in a very fair imitation of the tones of Cousin Eugenie. The ruse had its effect, for Leon promptly went off to tell Spidal, and when Dobson appeared he too was given the news. This seemed to settle their plans, for all three remained on guard, Dobson nearest to the tower, seated on an outcrop of rock, with his Mackintosh collar turned up, and his eyes usually turned to the misty sea. By this time it was eleven o'clock, and the next three hours passed slowly with heritage. He fell to picturing the fortunes of his friends. Dixon and the Princess should by this time be far inland, out of danger, and in the way of finding succour. He was confident that they would return, but he trusted not too soon, for he hoped for a run for his money, as Horatius in the gate. After that he was a little torn in his mind. He wanted the princess to come back and to be somewhere near if there was a fight going, so that she might be a witness of his devotion. But she must not herself run any risk, and he became anxious when he remembered her terrible sang froid Dixon, could no more restrain her than a child could hold a greyhound. But of course it would never come to that. The police would turn up long before the brig appeared. Dougal had thought that that would not be till high tide between four and five, and the only danger would be to the pirates. The three watchers would be put in the bag, and the men from the sea would walk into a neat trap. This reflection seemed to take all the colour out of Heritage's prospect. Peril and heroism were not to be his lot, only boredom. A little after twelve, two of the Tinklers appeared with some news which made Dobson laugh and pat them on the shoulder. He seemed to be giving them directions pointing seaward and southward. He nodded to the tower, where Heritage took the opportunity of again fluttering Saskia's scarf athwart the window. The Tinklers departed at a trot, and Dobson lit his pipe as if well pleased. He had some trouble with it in the wind, which had risen to an uncanny violence. Even the solid tower rocked with it and the sea was a waste of spindrift and low scurrying cloud. Heritage discovered a new anxiety, this time about the possibility of the brig landing at all. He wanted a complete bag, and it would be tragic if they got any of the three seedy ruffians now circumambulating his fortress. About one o'clock he was greatly cheered by the sight of Dougal. At the moment Dobson was lunching off a hunk of bread and cheese directly between the tower and the house, just short of the crest of the ridge, on the other side of which lay the stables and the shrubberies. Leon was on the north side, opposite the tower door, and Spidle was at the south end, near the edge of the garpled glen. Heritage, watching the ridge behind Dobson and the upper windows of the house which appeared over it, saw on the very crest something like a tuft of rusty bracken which he had not noticed before. Presently the tuft moved, and a hand shot up from it, waving a rag of some sort. Dobson, at the moment, was engaged with a bottle of porter, and Heritage could safely wave a hand in reply. He could now make out clearly the red head of Dougal. The chieftain, having located the three watchers, proceeded to give an exhibition of his prowess for the benefit of the lonely inmate of the tower. Using his cover drift of bracken, he wormed his way down till he was not six yards from Dobson, and Heritage had the privilege of seeing his grinning countenance a very little way above the innkeeper's head. Then he crawled back and reached the neighbourhood of Leon, who was sitting on a fallen Scotch fir. At that moment it occurred to the Belgian to visit Dobson. Heritage's breath stopped, but Dougal was ready and froze into a motionless blur in the shadow of a hazel bush. Then he crawled very fast into the hollow where Leon had been sitting, seized something which looked like a bottle, and scrambled back to the ridge. At the top he waved the object, whatever it was, but Heritage could not reply, for Dobson happened to be looking towards the window. That was the last he saw of the chieftain, but presently he realised what was the booty he had annexed. It must be Leon's life-preserver, which the night before had broken Heritage's head. After that cheering episode, boredom again set in. He collected some food from the Meehan Street Box, and indulged himself with a glass of liqueur brandy. He was beginning to feel miserably cold, so he carried up some broken wood, and made a fire on the immense hearth in the upper chamber. Anxiety was clouding his mind again, for it was now two o'clock, and there was no sign of the reinforcements which Dixon and the Princess had gone to find. The minutes passed, and soon it was three o'clock, and from the window he saw only the top of the gaunt shuttered house, now and then hidden by squalls of sleet, and Dobson squatted like an Eskimo, and trees dancing like a witchwood in the gale. All the vigour of the morning seemed to have gone out of his blood. He felt lonely and apprehensive and puzzled. He wished he had Dixon beside him, for that little man's cheerful voice and complacent triviality would be a comfort. Also, he was abominably cold. He put on his waterproof and turned his attention to the fire. It needed rekindling, and he hunted in his pockets for paper, finding only the slim volume lettered Whirls. I set it down as a most significant commentary on his state of mind. He regarded the book with intense disfavour, tore it in two, and used a handful of its fine decolleged leaves to get the fire going. They burned well, and presently the rest followed. Well for Dixon's peace of mind that he was not a witness of such vandalism. A little warmer, but in no way more cheerful, he resumed his watch near the window. The day was getting darker, and promised an early dusk. His watch told him that it was after four, and still nothing had happened. "'Where on earth were Dixon and the Princess? "'Where in the name of all that holy were the police? "'Any minute now the brig might arrive and land its men, "'and he would be left there as a burnt offering to their wrath. "'There must have been some infernal muddle somewhere.' "'Anyhow, the Princess was out of trouble. "'But where the Lord alone knew. "'Perhaps the reinforcements were lying in wait for the boats of the Garble foot.' That struck him as a lightly explanation, and comforted him. Very soon he might hear the sound of an engagement to the south, and the next thing would be Dobson and his crew in flight. He was determined to be in the show somehow, and would be very close on their heels. He felt a peculiar dislike to all three, but especially to Leon. The Belgian's small baby features had for four days set him clenching his fists when he thought of them. The next thing he saw was one of the tinklers running hard towards the tower. He cried something to Dobson, which Heritage could not catch, but which woke the latter to activity. The innkeeper shouted to Leon and Spidal, and the tinkler was excitedly questioned. Dobson laughed and slapped his thigh. He gave orders to the others, and in himself joined the tinker and hurried off in the direction of the garple foot. Something was happening there, something of ill omen, for the man's face and manner had been triumphant. Were the boats landing? As Heritage puzzled over this event, another a figure appeared on the scene. It was a big man in knickerbockers and mackintosh who came round the end of the house from the direction of the South Lodge. At first he thought it was the advance guard from his own side, the help which Dixon had gone to find, and he only restrained himself in time from shouting a welcome. But surely their supports would not advance so confidently in enemy country. The man strode over the slopes as if he were looking for somebody. Then he caught sight of Leon and waved him to come. Leon must have known him, for he hastened to obey. The two were about thirty yards from Heritage's window. Leon was telling some story volubly, pointing now to the tower and now towards the sea. The big man nodded as if satisfied. Heritage noticed that his right arm was tied up, and that the Mackintosh sleeve was empty, and that brought him enlightenment. It was Loudon, the factor, whom Dixon had winged the night before. The two of them passed out of view in the direction of Spidal. The sight awoke heritage to the supreme unpleasantness of his position. He was utterly alone on the headland, and his allies had vanished into space, while the enemy plans, moving like clockwork, were approaching their consummation. For a second he thought of leaving the tower and hiding somewhere in the cliffs. He dismissed the notion unwillingly, for he remembered the task that had been set him. He was there to hold the fort to the last, to gain time. That he could not for the life of him see what use time was to be when all the strategy of his own side seemed to have miscarried. Anyhow, the blackguards would be sold, for they would not find the princess. But he felt a horrid void in the pit of his stomach, and a looseness about his knees. The moments passed more quickly as he wrestled with his fears. The next he knew the empty space below his window was filling with figures— there was a great crowd of them, rough fellows, with seamen's coats still dripping as if they had had a wet landing. Dobson was with them, but for the West they were strange figures. Now that the expected had come, at last Heritage's nerves grew calmer. He made out that the newcomers were trying the door, and he waited to hear it fall, for such a mob could soon force it. But instead a voice called from beneath. "'Will you please open to us?' it said. He stuck his head out and saw a little group with one man at the head of it-a young man clad in oilskins whose face was dim in the murky evening. The voice was that of a gentleman. I have orders to open to no one, Heritage replied. Then I fear we must force an entrance, said the voice. You can go to the devil, said Heritage. That defiance was the screw which his nerves needed. His temper had risen, he had forgotten all about the princess, he did not even remember his isolation. His job was to make a fight for it. He ran up the staircase which led to the attics of the tower, for he recollected that there was a window there which looked over the ground before the door. The place was ruinous, the floor filled with holes, and a part of the roof sagged down in a corner. The stones around the window were loose and crumbling, and he managed to pull several out so that the slit was enlarged. He found himself looking down on a crowd of men who had lifted the fallen tree on which Leon had perched, and were about to use it as a battering-ram. "'The first fellow who comes within six yards of the door, I shoot!' he shouted. There was a white wave below, as every face was turned to him. He ducked back his head in time as a bullet chipped the side of the window. But his position was a good one, for he had a hole in the broken wall through which he could see, and could shoot with his hand at the edge of the window while keeping his body in cover. The battering party resumed their task, and as the tree swung nearer, he fired at the foremost of them. He missed, but the shot for a moment suspended operations. Again they came on, and again he fired. This time he damaged somebody, for the trunk was dropped. A voice gave orders a sharp, authoritative voice. The battering squad dissolved, and there was a general withdrawal out of the line of fire from the window. Was it possible that he had intimidated them? He could hear the sound of voices, and then a single figure came in sight again, holding something in its hand. He did not fire, for he recognized the futility of his efforts. The baseball swing of the figure below could not be mistaken. There was a roar beneath, and a flash of fire, as the bomb exploded on the door. Then came a rush of men, and the tower had fallen. Heritage clambered through a hole in the roof and gained the topmost parapet. He had still a pocketful of cartridges, and there, in a coin of the old battlements, he would prove an ugly customer to the pursuit. Only one at a time could reach that siege perilous. They would not take long to search the lower rooms, and then would be hot on the trail of the man who had fooled them. He had not a scrap of fear left, or even of anger. Only triumph at thought of how properly those ruffians had been sold. Like schoolboys, they who unaware. Instead of two women, they had found a man with a gun, and the princess was miles off and forever beyond their reach. When they had settled with him, they would no doubt burn the house down, but that would serve them little. From his airy pinnacle he could see the whole seafront of Hunting Tower, a blur in the dusk, but for the ghostly eyes of its white-shuttered windows. Something was coming from it, running lightly over the lawns, lost for an instant in the trees and then appearing clear on the crest of the ridge where some hours earlier Dougal had lain. With horror, he saw that it was a girl. She stood with the wind plucking at her skirts and hair, and she cried in a high, clear voice which pierced even the confusion of the gale. What she cried he could not tell, for it was in a strange tongue. But he reached the besiegers. There was a sudden silence in the dim below him, and then a confusion of shouting. The men seemed to be pouring out of the gap which had been the doorway, and, as he peered over the parapet, first one and then another entered his area of vision. The girl on the ridge, as soon as she saw that she had attracted attention, turned and ran back, and after her, up the slopes, went the pursuit bunched like hounds on a good scent. Mr. John Heritage, swearing terribly, started to retrace his steps. End of Chapter 13